If you would, please turn to Philippians. Philippians 3, we're in verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Just the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help our hearts to treasure Christ, to put our confidence in Christ. Lord, Lord, regardless of the things that we have experienced this week, regardless of the trials or the hardships that we have had to endure, Lord, remind us of Christ. Help us to put our eyes on Jesus. For salvation belongs to him and him alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The German reformer Martin Luther at one time was training to become a lawyer and then through a kind of a spectacular event in his life decided to change course from being trained to be a lawyer and instead decided to give his life to be a Catholic priest as kind of an appeasement to God, as kind of a, a way to, to pursue God, that God, if you will spare me, if you will save me, then I will devote my life to you. And so he saw training as a Catholic priest. But he could not endure or sustain the hardship of the reality of God. He prayed often, he prayed for long hours, 
he tried to do everything that is right, performing all the rites, the rituals, performing good works. He would spend hours at the confessional to, to the point where the priest would have to continue to send him home because he spent too many hours uh, acknowledging, confessing many of his sins, even those that you and I might think are the most perhaps trivial, the ones that we might think are not worthy of perhaps mentioning. He was afraid of conducting the Lord's Supper because he could not bear the weight of, of ministering before the presence of God in, the, in such a way. He lived his life as a way, as a kind of a person who knew that he did not deserve heaven, but he tried to work hard to earn heaven. But it's like no matter what he did, he could not earn it. He put his mind to reading the scriptures and he came to the book of Romans and he was struggling. He was actually agonizing over a particular passage in the book of Romans. He was reading Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it or in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was in verse 17 where he was agonizing. He says, As in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he took that and understood it to mean that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, namely the righteousness of God and the condemnation of un the unrighteous sinner, of giving them over to his judgment and wrath. And he could not bear the weight of that particular passage because he knew that the righteousness of God demanded a swish judgment over his own life as an unrighteous sinner. And so he said, by his own admission, that he hated that passage. But as he continued to study the passage, and even studying the passage in the original language of the New Testament, he came to the powerful realization that verse 17 of Romans 1 is talking about God's righteousness in his sparing the unrighteous sinner. That the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, namely in his giving a righteousness to the one who believes in Jesus. That that is where we see the righteousness of God in the gospel. And he describes the moment of his realization of that truth as a, as a being born again, is what he said. Those who come to the similar conclusion as Martin Luther can understand the supreme worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A worth that is undermined and devalued by certain persons that the passage here addresses. So then, let's take a look at what these persons teach and in what way they undermine the value of the gospel. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. There's a command here to rejoice in the Lord, which is fitting, given everything that he's going to say. Namely, when he gets to the conclusion of this particular section, where he seeks to remind the church. And what is exactly he's reminding is hard, kind of hard to determine contextually. But I think he's trying to remind them of what he's about to say. Could have been stuff that he had mentioned before when he first planted the church. 
But he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Reminders are important, right? Reminders keep us on track. Reminders keep us of forgetting important dates and tasks and appointments. To some degree, reminders help maintain relationships. And in this case, reminders are a matter of salvation. Three times he says, look out, look out, look out, look out, beware, be cautious of these dogs, these evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And the question is, who's are, who are these individuals that he's warning the church about? It's not the pretentious preachers of chapter 1, those who are preaching the gospel from selfish ambition. He seems to consider those as brothers in Christ to some degree. It's not the world which he addresses in Philippians, the end of Philippians chapter 1. What he has to say here are pretty harsh words. It would be kind of uncharacteristic of the Apostle Paul because he never uses such language to describe the world in any other of his letters. But he seems to be addressing some false teachers. Namely, these teachers seem to be Jewish Christians. These are Christians who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, combination of ethnic Jews who certainly believed in the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, came into the world, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that salvation comes through believing in Jesus, but at the same time believed and taught that one also has to have circumcision, that one still needs to ascribe to the Mosaic law in addition to believing in the gospel. These might also be individuals who were Gentiles, believed in the gospel, but also at the same time became sort of proselytes under the Mosaic law. So still ascribing to the Mosaic law. Hence why Paul says, those who mutilate the flesh, and he goes on to say that we put no confidence in the flesh, for we are the circumcision. So these are false teachers who are saying that you need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also put yourself under the law of Moses. So in other words, you must become like a Jew in order to receive salvation. So he calls them mutilators of the flesh, evildoers. He calls them dogs, which is pretty vile. Now, it's hard for us to kind of not see that as something that's very harsh because today, I mean, dogs are considered man's best friend. People have dogs as pets. People even call dogs their, their children, which is kind of odd to me. But back then, people didn't have dogs as pets. You might use dogs for hunting, but dogs were scavengers. Dogs roamed the streets and picked through trash and whatever it else. People would call somebody a dog as a way of insulting them. It was pretty harsh. So is Paul being overly harsh and kind of calling out these teachers in these ways? I don't think so, especially when you consider what is at stake. I mean, these individuals, these teachers are saying that you need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ plus submit yourself under the law of Moses. That is these two things that give you salvation. So believe and also earn. 
And so Paul says, beware of these teachers. Beware of them. Look out. Look out. Look out. For we are the ones who are circumcision. We are the true circumcision. We are the true Israelites. It's essentially what he is saying. Romans 2.25, Paul speaks to this. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And here's the kicker. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the one who is a true Jew, according to the Scriptures, is the one who believes in Christ. That is the one who puts no confidence in his flesh. The one who puts no confidence in his works. John 4, 21, Jesus in his conversation to the Samaritan woman at the well says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, spirit, must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus seems to be teaching here that a fundamental element of worship is that it requires the right nature, and that is a spiritual nature. You cannot worship God who is spirit apart from having a right spiritual nature. That only comes through having the living and abiding Holy Spirit of God in you. Only then can you truly and actually worship God. These false teachers, on the other hand, are placing an emphasis on works, on the flesh. And so essentially, they do not worship God. In fact, the Scriptures do teach that those who are in the flesh cannot even please God. And then Paul points to his impeccable, impeccable resume as a point of comparison. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, already obeying the law, right? Thanks to his parents. He's already obeying the law. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Right? He was of the chosen people. God, originally, in the Old Testament, we see with Israelites were God's original chosen people. Paul was of that people. Not only that, but a Jew could also trace back his lineage to be able to point point what tribe exactly he was from. As to the law, 
a Pharisee, right? a teacher of the law, an instructor of the law, one who told people what God commanded, what God desired, one who showed people the way, one who understood the law, one who memorized the law. Paul was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. A persecutor of Christians, pursuing Christians, throwing in prison the Christians. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He obeyed the law. He followed the law. He had impeccable, impeccable resume impeccable credentials, a zeal for God. Or a, right. Not really. He thought he was doing the work of God and persecuting Christians, throwing them into prison, consenting to the death of the Christian Stephen. Leader among God's people. Paul essentially says, if anybody earned salvation, it was me. I had it. I maintained it. Almost nobody else could compare. In fact, he's saying if these Jewish Christians so emphasize the works of the flesh in order to earn salvation, they need to live up to my standard. A standard that is actually very hard to achieve. Not only that, but if you want to be in a very advantageous position, it'd be helpful to be a, a Hebrew, God's chosen people, God's people that God still has a plan for, I believe. So nobody was in a better position than the Apostle Paul to receive salvation. But then Paul goes on to say, to show that on the end, it didn't matter. He let it all go. Putting your confidence in the flesh or in works is dangerous. Well, this is what Martin Luther was doing, and he found it absolutely impossible to maintain. He couldn't. Anyone who places their trust upon their own works doesn't understand the gravity of sin nor the gravity of the justice and holiness of God. Galatians 5.2 says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Right, so if you put yourself under the law, then you are required to keep the entire law perfectly. And Paul will say elsewhere in the book of Galatians that those who are under a law are under a curse. Why? because they failed to keep the law. That's what the law originally demanded. If anybody 
disobeys the law, then they are under a curse. You and I cannot keep the law. And anyone who puts himself in a position of of being under the law, putting their confidence under the law, are putting themselves in a yoke, under a yoke that they cannot bear. Right? And for any believer who places such confidence under the law, Paul says that you are severed from Christ. The only solution is to put your confidence elsewhere, namely in a person that is in Jesus Christ. With regards to his impeccable resume, Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Martin Luther came to this powerful realization of what the gospel actually meant, of what this righteousness that is in the gospel actually meant. And it was liberating to him. Liberating to a a person who understood that he cannot be righteous enough, that he cannot do enough, that he cannot confess enough, that he cannot pray long enough in order to merit God's salvation and to keep it. Until he understood that this righteousness that we are all required to have comes from an alien righteousness. That is, an a, a righteousness doesn't come from us, but comes from another person, and that is Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21 tells us, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul experienced an awakening on the Damascus Road on his way to persecute Christians when the Lord Jesus revealed to him and he began to see that his own righteous works doesn't matter. It didn't gain anything for him. But it must come through Jesus Christ. There's a person that I, that I follow, that I like to follow, I love to listen to, though he's not a Christian, clinical psychologist, conservative, by the name of Jordan Peterson. Some of you may have heard of him. This man has a lot to think about and a lot to say with regards to God, with regards to the Bible. He even teaches through the book of Genesis. And some of his insights are actually really helpful. Now, some of them are just kind of way off. But I was struck by a video several weeks ago that I saw where he said, where he admitted that, that, the, that the reality of Christ is absolutely terrifying. 
terrifying because of the demand that it places on a person. Wait, and the Gospels tell us what that demand is. You have to give up your life in order to receive Jesus. That is an incredible demand. Not only that, but the reality of Christ is frightening, right? If Jesus is truly the Son of God and he came into the world, lived as a perfect human being, died on the cross, rose from the dead, then that means not only he is Savior, but he is also judged, and that he will certainly judge all human beings. That is a very terrifying reality if you don't believe in Jesus. And the only way to escape that reality is actually to run to that reality, to run to Jesus Christ, to run to the only one who can protect you, to the only one who can save you. Because if all you have is a tiny little hope that maybe in eternity you'll end up in a good place based on the little minuscule good works that Lord considers in the grand scheme of eternity meaningless, then yes, the reality of Christ is absolutely terrifying. But the reality of Christ for those who place their faith and trust upon Jesus is actually a comforting and peaceful reality. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Salvation is determined by the object of your confidence. What we see here in the passage is that these false teachers had a misplaced confidence, and that is in the flesh. And misplaced is not like misplacing your keys or misplacing your wallet. It's like a pilot of an airplane, say who's flying from Boston to Orlando, Florida, sets the destination, right, the coordinates, sets it on autopilot, but if he lets just if he just lets the the plane fly on its own, it's going to end up somewhere else. Why? Because the earth continues to turn. But he's going to continually adjust the coordinates to make sure he's heading in the right direction. This is what a misplaced confidence results in. It re- results in a completely different eternal destination. Paul is showing us here not only the right confidence, but he shows us what the the right confidence results in, and that is an absolute joy and a treasure that one has found. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. He says again, I count everything as loss. He says later, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish, he says. Everything that he had, his impeccable resume. Everything that he had, everything that he once was, the prestige, the honor, the status, the respect, the admiration that he had from the people, from his fellow teachers, everything that he had, he counted as absolute rubbish. 
garbage. Worse than that. In fact, Paul even has something much more vile to say with regards to those things. Something even vulgar, something that even back then, I don't know, might even be considered a cuss word. Equivalent to a four-letter word that you and I are familiar with today. In other, in other words, Paul says, I count this as excrement for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Man finds a great treasure in the field. He counts it much more worthy than everything that he has in his possession. He goes and he sells all of his possessions in order to buy the field where the treasure is. He says that in his joy, he does it. The merchant gives up everything he has, sells everything he has to buy this one pearl of great value because he has determined that this thing, this one pearl, is worth it everything that he has. He does it in absolute joy. Paul is not speaking about an experience of regret. There wasn't any reluctance, I think, or any reservation. He wasn't having, he doesn't have any bitterness. He wasn't missing the good old days. No, he counts everything that he once had at rubbish. Because having Christ is far better. These passages in Matthew 13 also speak of confidence as well. The man who found the treasure hidden in the field counted what he found in that field to be much more valuable than what he had in his personal possessions. He was confident in it, and so he gave up everything else in order to have it. The, per- the, the merchant of fine pearls saw this one pearl and was confident that it is worth it. anything he has in his possession. He sold it all so he could have that one pearl. Right? And that is the confidence that Paul describes in the passage with regards to the gospel, and that is the same confidence that you and I are called to have with regards to the gospel, that in comparison to everything else, it is rubbish because Christ is infinitely better, of much more value. And if you're placing placing your confidence in your own works to save you, I ask you to repent and turn to Jesus and place your confidence upon Jesus and trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. But even as believers, we at times have a tendency to put our confidence in other things in addition to the gospel. Sometimes we have a tendency to put our confidence in our Bible reading, how often we read our Bible instead of putting our confidence in the one who the Bible, the Bible describes. 
instead of loving and pursuing the relationship with the one who saved us. Sometimes we have a tendency to put our confidence in our prayers, how often we pray, how long we pray, instead of putting our confidence in the one who purchased this gift of prayer for us and stands as a high priest in the heavens who intercedes on our behalf. Sometimes we have a a tendency to place our confidence on church attendance, when it should be a confidence on the person that we are looking to worship and to praise, that is Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have a tendency to place our confidence in our confession. I will pray, I will confess, and the Lord will forgive me. Instead of putting our confidence in the one who has purchased our forgiveness and died for every single one of our sins. Sometimes we treat prayer or confession as a, as a magic formula. It's not intended to function that way. Sometimes we have a tendency to place our confidence in people. Sometimes we tend to place our confidence in making people happy. As a pastor, I have a tendency to place my confidence in church attendance or in making people happy. Sometimes we have a tendency to place our confidence in the wrong things. And and many of those things are things that we don't necessarily have control over. You can't always control what people think about you. You can't always control what people do. You can't always control who's present, who isn't. You can't always control what's in the bank or what isn't. Sometimes we have a tendency to place our trust in what we have or don't have. And so we lie awake at night that cannot sleep because we don't have a confidence in Christ. Let this today be a reminder to you to place your entire confidence 100% upon Jesus Christ. Not in man. Not in any liturgy. Not in your good works but place your confidence upon Jesus Christ. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. The difference between Christianity, the difference between the way that we choose to live because we are Christians in comparison to all other religions in the world is that we have our confidence in a relationship, and that is with Christ. No other religion, no other way of life has that. They place their confidence in other things. They place their confidence in good works or doing the right things. There's no confidence in a relationship. But that's where our ultimately, that's where our confidence comes from. We have confidence of our acceptance. We have confidence of our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And it concludes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Speaking about our union with Christ, sharing with Christ, being united to Christ. Now this passage isn't intended to be prescriptive, that you are called to give up all that you have right now are all to follow Jesus Christ. And it's, in a way, as a Christian, you already have. 
or you've given your life to follow Jesus. The Christian life continues or, or, or demands a continual dying of yourself, right? Day by day, dying to yourself in order to follow Jesus. And if Christ is a great treasure of the Christian life, the resurrection is the great reward of the Christian life. This is ultimately what we have to hope for. This is ultimately what is waiting for those who continue to die to themselves and to follow Jesus Christ, who continue to put their confidence in Christ, who continue to see Jesus as, their, as the supreme treasure of their life. We are looking forward to the resurrection. And the resurrection isn't an end of itself. But we look forward to the resurrection because in the resurrection, we enjoy more of Christ. We get to enjoy Christ in our relationship to a much greater degree than we could ever have in this life. And so that by any means possible, we look to attain the resurrection so that we may have more of Christ. So may you and I continue to put our confidence in Jesus and it is, a, it is a choice that we have to make every single day. As I said before, there's always a tendency to put our confidence in something else plus the gospel. But that isn't the gospel. The gospel is placing your confidence in the gospel, and that's alone. And that alone is a source of joy, it's a source of peace, it's a source of comfort. And in that is where we receive our greatest hope, which is the resurrection, so that we may have more of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we want to put our full confidence in the gospel. Lord, and sometimes we fail to do that. Sometimes it is just easier to depend on ourselves and put confidence in ourselves, in our own works. Lord, but your scriptures command us to put our confidence in you and in you alone. Lord, would you help us to do that? Only when we place our confidence in you can we be better Christians, can we be better brothers and sisters to our siblings in Christ. Only by placing our confidence in you, our full confidence in you, can we be better neighbors to those around us. So would you help us to do that each and every day? Help us to make the choice to put our confidence in you and in you alone. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.